We begin the sermon with a weighty question. Have you ever burned your toast? Children, listen to this one, my children particularly. Have you ever burned your toast? I completely burned my toast the other day. But, uh, you know, it was still salvageable. So I grabbed the bread, and of course I grabbed the steak knife because it's serrated. Right? And all you do is you just sit there and scratch the toast right until all the burnt surfaces come off, and then you're done. You're ready to go. You just have a really crispy piece of toast. Uh, it's, I'm sure you guys may know it's actually quite effective. So wanting to stand uh, or wanting to salvage my piece of bread, I go to the sink and start scraping like there is no tomorrow. You know, you're scraping one side, and then you're done. You're scraping the other side, and then you've got to scrape basically the crust off. So I finished. I was done. I was satisfied. Like, finally, I can sit down for family breakfast and begin eating. So I go sit down. You know, my family's all gathered around there. And a little while later, I got to get up and grab something. So as I passed the sink, I couldn't help but notice something I didn't notice before. Little black flakes, like, all over the place. In the sink, on top of the counter, like, even maybe on the, on the faucet itself. And I thought, like, this is disgusting. Like, who in the world would leave this here? Like, where did all of this come from? And, you know, the fathers, they want to take the opportunity. I'm a teacher, right? So I take the opportunity to want to teach the children. Okay, now is the perfect time to teach the children about what cleaning up after themselves looks like and what's required to do all of this. And so I go back to family breakfast and ask them, hey, guys, you know, who made the mess in the sink? And all of them are, like, looking at me. They're shaking their heads. They're like, you know, absolutely. Like, we didn't do it. And I'm thinking, like, this cannot be true. Five of my family members are right in front of me, and no one has made this mess. So then I proceed to ask each and every single one of them, did you make this mess? And then each one, no, 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 no. I look on the, around the table, and all eyes are on, on me, and I'm starting to put together the facts. I was the only one who had a burnt piece of toast in his hand. In fact, I might have been the only one eating toast at the breakfast table. And we're probably eating cereal or something like that. So somehow, in all of that, my assessment of the situation was entirely wrong. I thought surely one of them caused the mess, but in actuality, it was me. Now, I'm just going to take a guess here. Have you ever been that oblivious and obtuse? Where you need someone to point out the obvious, Melanie, she just kind of looked at me and said, it must be you. <laughs> you do, have you ever needed a it is you moment? Well, friends, this morning, the Apostle Paul has a it is you moment with some of his readers who were at the very least tempted to be morally oblivious and obtuse. Please turn in the book of Romans to Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. That's our passage for this morning. It can be found on page 940 if you're using one of those black Bibles in front of you. By the way, it's obviously super hot in here. If you guys have some sort of health problem or just are super hot, you might want to move to like the back three rows because that's where the AC, you know, really blows right there. If you are joining us for the first time, uh, we, are going, we are walking through the book of Romans. And it was written by a former Jewish teacher of the Old Testament by God's grace. You know, God saved him. Jesus reveals himself to him, says, look, you might think you understand the Old Testament, but you don't. 
All of the Old Testament points to salvation in Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so then he begins, after seeing the truth of the gospel, he just goes around the world basically trying to teach people this gospel so that others would believe and be saved. Let's go ahead and look at the passage that I'm going to read uh, that, that is our focus this morning. And then I'm going to set up the context here. Look there, chapter 2, verse 1. Paul begins our passage saying, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. The reason why Paul wrote the book of Romans or the letter of Romans to the Roman Christians was really to enlist their support as he was traveling, ultimately trying to get to Spain to bring the gospel there. So if you go over to Romans chapter 15, right, we want to be kind of like detectives to figure out what's going on here. Just like we write letters to other people. So Paul, the apostle did inspired by God himself. If you go to Romans chapter 15, you really see the purpose here. 1520, it says there you see his ambition Thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ had not already been named. So the apostle who was charged by God to set the foundation of the church along with the other apostles. He's sitting here. He's saying, I want to take the gospel over there because no one has preached the gospel there. And so he writes to these Roman Christians enlisting their support. You see there in 24, he says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. That's where he wants to go. And to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. And then you skip down to 30 says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the spirit to strive together with me, with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. That I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem, that is the Jerusalem church, may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will that I may I may come to you and with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So here he writes both encouraging the church and also instructing the church. So he's laying out who he is and the gospel that he preaches. Just like if you were raising support, let's say, to go on some sort of mission trip, you would want to communicate who you are to the church that you're raising funds for, for example, or wanting spiritual support. This morning we find ourselves in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Paul continues to lay out the gospel that he believes the gospel that he received, the gospel that Jesus himself revealed to him. And he's telling them about man's ultimate sin that is rejecting God. He is, in the course of Romans, going to lift up the, the grace of God, salvation from God, 
But first, he talks about the bad news. And the bad news, really, he's setting up the good news. In chapter 1, in relation to the bad news, we saw that man rejected God as the divine creator. God's fingerprints can be seen in everything. He is the divine creator, the all-powerful one, the divine one. And yet, God's people didn't care. Instead of giving God the glory, they were inverted. Their desires were inverted, and they gave the glory to themselves. And so they traded in, they exchanged the glory of God for the stuff of the world. Instead of worshiping God, they turned inward and they worshiped themselves and even, even idols, the stuff of creation. Three times in the passage that we saw at least last week, three times it says mankind made an exchange. They exchanged the stuff of God, the glory of God, the truths of God, the gospel, and God gave them over. He says, look, you are inverted. You want to worship yourself? Okay, I give you over to yourself. And not only did man become inverted in loving themselves over God, they even became inverted and loved themselves as opposed to the opposite sex. And it says there that they burned with desires, their own inwardness. God just simply gave them over to it. Their inwardness didn't only show in their rejection of God, it showed, as we saw last week, even in homosexuality. They burned in the lust of their hearts. But, friends, the ultimate sin is not homosexuality. The ultimate sin is not giving God the glory that he deserves. And that sin works its way out in all areas of life, whether it be in our sexual immorality, whether homosexual or heterosexual. It works itself out in so many different ways. Look there in 29 to 31. Just see this this vice list. He says, they, those folks that God gave them, God gave up, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And the grand indictment is 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, so they know that God, has said that God reveals this stuff generally. They say, who cares about the judge? They also give approval to those who practice them. They are all for evil. If you pause for a moment here to see what's going on here, you'll see that Paul is actually getting some of his readers to look outside of the window, so to speak, to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. Because the Jews at the time, they had this understanding that there were the Jews and then there's everybody else. And uh, here, Paul is helping the folks look outside the window and look at the Gentiles, the, the dirty folks, the folks who are worthy, actually, of God's wrath, they would think. So imagine the Jewish perspective. The Jews were moralists. They were the do-gooders. And they, for about 1,500 years up to that point in time, were a society founded on God's law, the Ten Commandments. And even before that, they had the verbal law of God. And the law of God written on their hearts. So how would the do-gooder respond to Paul as they are looking outside the window, looking at the Gentiles? They cheer him on. Both the moral Jew or the moral Jew stood against those things that Paul was just talking about. And they would heap judgments on the pagans who gave themselves to do what ought not to be done. Maybe they would agree heartily in hearing how the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness. You see that there in 118. But Paul knows his audience, doesn't he? 
With his law-trained mind, he anticipates the do-gooders' reaction. As they are cheering him on in in the condemnation of the sinners, he turns and says to the moralist, you too are without excuse and are under the condemnation of God. Peering through the window, looking outward, looking at the Gentiles, he then switches so quickly and says, but you too. To the good people, the first thing he makes clear is that there are no good people. This is point number one, if you're taking notes. This is point number one. You see there the predicament, the predicament, which basically means the difficult situation. There are no good people, he says to the good people. This is found in verses one and two. You look there. The predicament is there are no good people, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So you see the logic there in 2, 1, as it is connected to what comes before. He says, look, you judge them, but friends, you practice the same things. Therefore... You too are without excuse before God. The do-gooders are guilty as well. What exactly condemns the do-gooder, the moralist, right? It's obvious they are under condemnation, right? They condemn themselves. But what exactly condemns the moralist here? Some people want to say that what condemns the moralist is their judgment, right? The fact that they are determining right from wrong, that's what judges them. That's what condemns them. Actually, friends, that is not true. That's far from the truth. In fact, that is a lie. The act of assessing and determining whether something is right or wrong is not a sin. In fact, it is, in fact, required. That's exactly what Paul's doing in Romans chapter 1, isn't he? He is saying what is right and what is wrong. And then you can think about not only does Paul do these things. I mean, Paul does it again in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 5. He says, I have already passed judgment on that person. He also goes on to say, and and he anticipates them in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, he's going to say, or he anticipates his hearers, his readers' response you know, and they might say, well, what, what do we have of judging? And he says, no, we have every right to judge, basically. We judge those inside the church. We are not to judge those outside the church, as in we're supposed to determine what is right or wrong according to God's word. And you think about Jesus, too. Jesus himself judges the do-gooders in the book of Matthew. If you want some examples, you could just read, for example, for this afternoon, Matthew chapter 23. He just calls on these woes upon the Pharisees for their self-righteousness. He calls self-righteous folks, you know, a brood of vipers. Christ has no problem judging. Let's be clear here. Now, some of us might respond and say, well, Jesus in Matthew 7 says, judge not lest ye be judged. But friends, what Jesus is getting at is exactly what our passage is getting at, exactly what the passage that Steve read for us earlier is getting at. He's not getting at the act of judgment. He's getting at the self-righteousness that undergirds self-righteous sinners' judgment of others. So it's like other people thinking that they actually have a one-up on other people and that somehow their one-upness, their own self-righteousness, gets them in good with God. That's the context of Matthew 7. He says, look, okay, look, you want to judge according to your own righteous rule? I'm going to give that to you as well. That's what he's saying there in Matthew 7. It's actually what he says here in the book of Romans. So what really condemns the moralist? What condemns him is that they are hypocrites. We know they are hypocrites because the same things they judge the others for, the sinners for, they practice themselves. It says it right in the text. Now, Paul actually is not primarily referring to homosexuality, which he mentioned in chapter 1. Okay, so get that. He is not 
primarily referring to homosexuality, which later on I think will become interesting. I assume that some Jews wrestled with homosexuality, but you've got to think of the context, right? They really are going to be heaping judgments because they know throughout Scripture in the Old Testament that God condemns homosexuality. It's not according to God's own order, his creation order, which is why committing that sin is sin. The Jews, for example, had a long-standing position against the practice of homosexuality, as once again you can read in, in the, the Old Testament. The same things that he's spoken of, that he's speaking of here in verse number one, for example, you practice the very same things. Verse two, verse two there, those who practice the same things. Those same things are actually referring to the things of 29 to 31. Just the regular old sins that all other peoples wrestle with. That's hypocrisy. The do-gooder, while he judges others, has his own list of sins and stands before God, a holy God, guilty. So you know the saying, you know, if you point a finger at somebody else, there are three pointing back at you. Ever hear that sort of uh, saying? That's just a modern echo of what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? So self-righteousness that we saw in Matthew is the same self-righteousness found here. Another thing that condemns them, not only are they hypocrites, but they are self-righteous in their judgments. They're self-righteous. Many Jews of Paul's day based their own self-righteousness on how they followed and obeyed the law of God. Similar to many people today, they think they were good because, you know, I don't kill people. I don't steal things, therefore I must be good with God. So I fulfill the law to get in good with God. That's the self-righteous person's perspective, the legalist perspective. And so and Jesus, he clearly teaches against this perspective. He clearly teaches against this in a number of places in Scripture. And I think a great story that Jesus tells is the one that Steve read for us earlier in Luke chapter 18, where Jesus tells this parable about two men who go up to pray, right? There's a crowd gathering around Jesus. And he knows who his audience is. There are many self-righteous Jews there who are relying on the law of God as opposed to relying on God. He says, the first man, by all appearances, is a righteous man. Actually, let's go ahead and turn there. Uh, the book of Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 18, verse 10. Actually, let's just go ahead and read nine. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, right? That's, that's the Romans context, that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. That's, that's the situation that's going on in the book of Romans. It says two men went into the temple to pray. The first one is a Pharisee. Steve explained that this guy is a reputable guy. This is a guy you want to be your neighbor, a guy that you want to watch your kids if you go out of town. Right, the Pharisee standing by himself, look what he does in his self-righteousness. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this guy, this tax collector. And then he prays about a whole lot about what he does. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all they get. It's a whole lot about himself as he's standing before a holy God. And then in verse 13, you see this other guy that Jesus talks about, but the tax collector, known as like a bad guy, steals money, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. It's a sign of humility. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Right? He's, he's humble there. He acknowledges his wrong there. He stands before a holy God just saying, look, God, you do something. It's not about what I do. God, you do something. 
And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, declared righteous rather than the other. I mean, to every self-righteous person, you would have thought like, whoa, this is, this is nuts here. The self-righteous guy that I actually want to be my neighbor, he goes home unsaved. And the other dude who mind judge, he goes home saved. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What a reversal. In the world's eyes, the so-called good man should have gotten salvation. But in God's eyes, it's the sinner who prizes the payment of Christ's blood, what Christ has done. It's those people who are granted salvation, those people who are justified by God. In God's world, as God's creation is judged by God's standard, friends, there are no righteous people who can stand before God, a holy God, on their own. If he should mark iniquities, everybody would be done for. The hypocritical, self-righteous person, they get into trouble because they struggle to see how bad they really are. Christians can be guilty of this as well. You can take the issue of homosexuality that we touched on last week. There might be some Christians who struggle to look at others out the window of their own home, so to speak, and think like homosexuality is like the worst sin ever. They are the unrighteous of the unrighteous. They are, they are, in fact, without excuse before God. And if you know that you are tempted to self-righteousness, isn't it telling who is compared to the homosexual? Friends, I hope this is a huge rebuke. In, verse, in, in earlier verses, it says there that the homosexual is without excuse, right? The one who is so turned inward, who delights in themselves. They reject the worship of God. But in 2.1, who is without excuse? It is the righteous, the so-called righteous do-gooder who wrestles actually, no matter how much they deny it, with some of this regular stuff of sin. Like, are, have you ever been envious? That's who he compares with the homosexual. He says, hey, you know, you, have, have you ever had uh, maliciousness? You ever gossiped about other people, wanting to do other people bad? He says, that person is the stands without excuse before God. You ever boasted in yourself as opposed to the glory of God? He says, the boastful stand without excuse before God. Have you ever disobeyed your parents? He says the disobedient to parents stand before God without excuse, just as the homosexual does. This here should be a rebuke here. Even the moralist who trusts in his morals is guilty before a holy God. Because the standard, the measuring rod of righteousness that God uses, friends, is not your own. It is not your families. It is not your subcultures. It is not your societies. The measuring rod of God is God's very own righteousness in his judgment. And so for me as a pastor and teacher of God's word, I would be neglectful. I would be condemned if I told you, no, really, you should be your own standard of morality you, you, or your family. Your family should be your standard of morality. Oh, no, even your society should be the standard of morality, right? In your own self and then in your family and in your society, in your subculture, there's always a sliding scale of morality, always. But with God, his standard of morality is fixed. And you could have all the philosophical reasoning, you know, if you want to take the postmodern stance and really that there's moral relativism or whatever, uh, you can have the, the philosophical reasoning about why you believe one thing is right over the other or just determine right from wrong on your own passions and desires. 
Well, friends, Romans 3, 19 and 20, if you look there, you see who man is accountable to. 19 to 20. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. He's talking about here, whether it be the law written on Gentiles' hearts or the law that is in the Old Testament. He says, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to who? It's not your family. It's not yourself. It's not your society. It's God. Friends, if there is a fixed standard of morality by which God will use to judge, you see all of a sudden that we should be pointing people to that righteous standard saying, no, actually, you need to live up to that righteous standard for salvation. And that's, friends, exactly what Paul is doing. You know, it, it's so funny. You know, we think that actually that, that this is a good idea to let our own standard of morality guide us. But then in reality, I think when the rubber meets the road, we know that that so utterly fails. That so utterly fails, right? Just remember your brother or sister, when you guys were trying to get away with some sort of sin, I mean, isn't one brother or sister neglectful towards loving his other brother or sister if he goes and says, no, you're not going to get in trouble. Mom and dad, even though they've told us that this is what you're supposed to do, it's okay. You don't need to worry about that. You would think that person is unhelpful. Or what if I told you? What if we told one another? Oh, don't worry. You know, yeah, it's against the law to do X, Y, and Z, but hey, live according to your own standard. You're never going to get in trouble with the law, right? That, would, that person would be unhelpful. And then for some reason, we go to God and think, oh, God doesn't really care. But yet it seems so obvious and so clear just in the structures of humanity that there actually is a fixed standard and that someone determines it. And then if you, you, know, you think about it, ultimately, it just goes back to God. He is the one with the fixed standard, the one to whom we should be pointing people to. So we, friends, want to be pointing people to that. And the reality is there are no good people when they stand before a holy and righteous God. That is the predicament. There are no righteous people. There are no good people in God's eyes. Paul, then he moves on to identify some, uh, identify uh, the more fundamental problems with these do-gooders there in verses 3 and 5. We turn to point number 2 if you're taking notes here. The problem with good people. There is a problem with good people, believe it or not. He says, first, they assume their righteousness earns them God's pardon. They assume their righteousness earns them God's pardon. Look there in verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, like, do you consider, calculate? Do you consider, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Here you see just how self-deceiving hypocrisy and self-righteousness are. The do-gooder not only fails to judge others rightly, so they fail to judge other people rightly, they say they are beyond the salvation of God, but they also fail to judge themselves rightly. They say about themselves, I am beyond the judgment of God. So you get that? They judge others wrongly. They're beyond the salvation of God. They judge themselves wrongly by saying, I am beyond the judgment of God. Self-righteousness and pride has so clouded their vision, skewed their own judgment, that they don't care to hear the summons of the true judge. So you picture, right, a federal, the federal government sending you warnings and notices that, let's say, if you don't change your ways or pay this or that, you will end up in jail. And these self-righteous people say, no, this, this letter doesn't apply to me. We're good here. The self-righteousness works to strengthen the audacity of the moralist, the pride of the, audace- the, the pride of the moralist, such that they toss out the warnings of God that alert them to the fact 
that they too are without excuse and that they will face God the judge. The moralistic Jew, right, to understand the situation here, uh, they who relied on the law would have thought this. They would have thought, I uh, enjoy a special position as God's Old Testament people. Therefore, I am entitled to special privilege. Special position equals special privilege. And here are the privileges that they're not going to be judged, or so they think. This attitude can be seen in the Jewish writings outside of the Bible that were in circulation that they were reading. The non-Jews, right, they definitely will be judged. Those guys out there will definitely be judged. But we Jews, even if we sin, we are good. What they didn't realize is that with greater revelation, so think Old Testament, there is greater accountability. The Gentiles, they had the revelation of God in creation. That is natural revelation. We talked about that before. They have the revelation of right and wrong, or at least to some degree right and wrong, insofar as they can tell, in their consciences. But the Jews, they had both natural revelation, or three things. They had natural revelation. They also had the consciences, uh, their conscience. But they also had God's word, that is special revelation. Yet they rejected it. Jesus came in the flesh, yet they rejected him. The moralists somehow trusted in their assessments that God judges those sinners, but in calling them sinners, they judge themselves, Paul says. Again, they use the wrong standard. God judges, God not only judges the appearance, but he also judges the heart. They used the law, right? They wanted to obey the law to attain their self-righteousness, but they used it wrongly. God said that the law was given to expose sin, actually. So all of a sudden, the law becomes really helpful. The law becomes a thing that points us to our need of God. Right? This is God in his grace revealing to us the law, how we fail, so that we might become desperate and therefore turn to the God who made us and the God who can save us, save us. Jesus makes clear that God gets after the heart. It's the heart that's a problem. Certainly, the doing is the problem, but he gets at the heart. You think about this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7. It's interesting that this account echoes the Moses account, doesn't it? Moses goes up on the law. He receives the law. Uh, He goes up on the mountain. He receives the law of God. He gives it to the people. Here, Jesus in Matthew 5, he too is going up on the mountain. But instead of receiving the law from God, he speaks the law of God because he is God, the son come in the flesh. And so he says in Matthew 5, 21, 22, you have heard it said that is in the Old Testament, that is formerly, you shall not murder, but I... The Lord God himself, I say to you that every one of you who is angry is liable to judgment. He says, you murder if you're angry. In 527, he says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. That is in the Old Testament. That is formerly through uh, in, in the Ten Commandments. But I say to you, the Lord God himself says to you that if you look lustfully at a woman, that person is already committing adultery. He gets at the heart here. Perfect righteousness is the standard of God's judgment. And regardless of what you think or whatever the moralist thinks, God will judge everyone in his own righteousness, even though the moralist hopes otherwise. One commentator, he insightfully note this. He said, the secret hope of the hypocrite is that God will somehow judge him by a standard lower than perfect truth and righteousness. We all know what it's like here to want to live before the eyes of others. And we think somehow that the court that we're finally judged by is the court of others, or maybe even the court of our own self-righteousness. And so the secret hope of the hypocrite is that God will somehow judge them by a standard lower than perfect truth and righteousness. It's according to their standard. 
or according to my standard. Let me continue here. He knows enough to recognize the wickedness of his heart, but he hopes vainly that God will judge him in the same superficial way that most others judge him and that he judges himself. He plays a kind of religious charade, wanting to be judged by his appearance rather than by his true character. And because most men accept him for what he pretends to be, as most hypocrites, he assumes God will do the same. This is living before the eyes of men, or maybe even living according to the standard of your righteousness. But God not only judges the actions of men, more importantly, he judges man's heart. So the first problem there of this moralist, the do-gooder, is that he thinks his righteousness earns God's pardon. Another problem of the self-righteous person here is that they presume upon God's kindness. That's what he says. Look there in verse 4. He says, Or do you presume on the the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It's interesting that the thing God designed to help guide the self-righteous to repentance, usher them to repentance, is the very same thing that the self-righteous presume upon or take for granted. And that thing really is time and God delaying his judgment in the time. I mean, you can picture the self-righteous using their time so wisely according to their own standards. Right? They cheer on Paul as Paul lays out all the blows against the Gentiles in chapter 1. God's wrath is being revealed against all of them and they witness God's wrath over there. But God's righteous standard over them doesn't cause them to be moved in their own hearts maybe they sit and speak about all the requirements of the law they boast in the law they pray about the fulfillment of the law they figure out ways to bolster their own self-righteousness even further taking their god-given time to strategize about ways in which they can create new laws and fulfill them themselves as jesus condemns the pharisees for He says that they are so concerned about the law with no regard for heart, a heart for the God of the law, right? This is presuming upon the riches of God's kindness, the riches of his forbearance, the riches of his patience. And every single day that goes by that they are not immediately judged. You realize, friends, that God had every right to judge them finally, fully for all of their sins. He had every right to bring them, to call accounts in that very moment and in every single moment previous. You look there in verse 2, it says the judgment of God, they know, they know it rightly falls. Either that word there rightly falls on those who practice such things, rightly falls is basically uh, the equity of God, the, the justice of God, the righteousness of God. It, it would rightly fall upon those who practice such things. They too know it. And so they presume upon god's mercy time was given to them as god delayed his judgment supposed to turn them to repentance but of course they too suppressed the truth didn't it and the reason for these problems is their ultimate problem there in verse five their hard and impenitent hearts again we see the focus on the heart here now it's even clear paul says there in verse five because of your hard and impenitent heart you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Their hearts were hard and unrepentant. Irony of ironies, right? That the time God had given them, which was available to them, for them to use for their salvation, for, so that they would find salvation, they used to work towards their condemnation. And so the result is that they're staring up, storing up this 
end times wrath for themselves on the day of judgment. He's talking about the judgment that eventually leads people to hell. You know, as we apply this to ourselves, this is very applicable to you if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian. Whether you are a moralist, a do-gooder, or a hedonist, right? You just seek pleasure and that's all you do. Friends, God is giving you time. After last week's sermon, someone asked me, how is God loving in his judgment, right? Last week we were talking about how God's wrath is revealed. But friends, you should see love here in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. We see God's love in that God pursues the hard-hearted and unrepentant. We see this time and time again for Israel. Israel in the Old Testament, you know, they're called whores, actually, that they turn away from their beloved. That is God himself who sins. Time and time again, they're turning away and running after other people. They are so hard-hearted that the Bible says that they are in need of the circumcision of the heart. I mean, it's really graphic, isn't it? It's spoken of it like that in Deuteronomy 10 and elsewhere. Despite their hard-heartedness, God pursues them. And even promises his people that he himself would remove their stony hearts and give them a heart of flesh, a living heart that beats after the living God. Friends, that's God's love in his kindness, in his forbearance of sinners. You guys know what the the word forbearance means? It means endurance, enduring with sinners who have rebelled against him, the only king and creator. And then in his patience, he waits, desiring that we turn from our sins and to him the forgiving God. It's hard to just kind of drop in here to Romans chapter 1 or drop in here to Romans chapter 2, but then forget everything that has gone on since the creation of the world, since Genesis chapter 3, where man rebelled against his creator and wanted to be king for himself and so toppled over, at least tried to, toppled over the frown and stole the crown of God's glory. We forget about that. We forget about how time and time again God pursued unrighteous people who had turned away from him again and again and again. The prophets, you know, they were preaching a word of repentance. And they wouldn't listen. They're so hard-hearted that they wouldn't listen. And finally he sends Jesus, God himself, come in the flesh, calling people, repent of your sins, and you, friend, will be saved. And on the empty cross, he plants a flag, so to speak, of full and free forgiveness that we are supposed to look at every single day. That's God's kindness, the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, leaving us that flag of Jesus Christ who has won salvation for sinners, all by his grace, all by his mercy, all in his loving kindness. That's God's love in his forbearance, in his kindness, in his patience. He has given us time, time to repent of your sins and believe upon him for the salvation of your sins. This is where our passage actually comes to stop. Or actually, uh, in thinking of where it comes to rest, it comes to stop. It leaves us thinking about the judgment of God. For Christians, we know the judgment of God, right? We see the cross and we know what happens there. But, you know, he's leading us through this. this uh, he's leading us through the logic of the bad news and then the good news. And he wants to convey that there is judgment of God. But he's waiting to get to the cross. He speaks about the end times judgment that will, in fact, happen. For those who reject Jesus, if you look there, verses six and six to eleven, he will render to each one according to his works. This is the principle by which he speaks of this condemnation, this judgment. He will render each one according to his works to those who by patience and well doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. 
There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. How's that for a slap in the face for the self-righteous Jews, right? Judgment starts with them. Verse 10, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Again, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, you see this principle of judgment here? God's impartial judgment? God's impartiality in his judgment is the emphasis, actually, of this ver- these verses here. We see it in the first and last verse of this section. Read it again. Look there, verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. And then verse 11. He, for God shows no partiality. This principle of partial- impartiality is found in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You can read some of these verses later. You can think of, Jerem- uh, you can think of Psalm 62, verse 12. You will render to a man according to his work. Other verses, Jeremiah 17, 10, Job 34, 11. And then in the New Testament, perhaps the most famous verse here comes from Matthew 16, 27, where Jesus says, for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And you see there that judgment unfolds in the book of Revelation. Same language is used, Revelation 2, 23. 20 verse 12 22 verse 12 it's clear for those who live a consistent godly life submitting their whole entire lives whole entire selves to god in faith god saves them this is what is meant by in patience in well-doing god will grant them eternal life salvation this person here this person who seeks after god with all of his heart who relies upon god by faith According to God's grace on the cross, this person is contrasted with those who exchange the glory of God, the honor of God, the immortality, the immortal God. God gives the person who believes on him in faith. He gives them glory and honor and immortality. These are all descriptions of eternal salvation. There, verse 9 is spoken of of this eternal peace that we sung about in Great is Thy Faithfulness. But to the one who is self-seeking, who seeks their own glory, it says there, the one who does not obey righteousness... That's another thing for saying, another way of saying obeying the gospel, the obedience of faith, which we've seen earlier. That person, there is wrath and fury, eternal hell. You know, non-Christian, if you're visiting with us again, and perhaps you, you are the moralist who goes by the name, maybe even of Christian. Friends, this is bad news. But of course, as Romans is all about, there is good news. God has revealed his saving righteousness in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, the Lord. And the gospel says that the righteous one died on the cross for the unrighteous so that all unrighteous people who would repent of their sins and believe on him would be saved. Friends, you got to you see here, right, this principle of God's impartial judgment. That should make us sit very uncomfortably underneath God's judgment. That should make us that should really shock us. But friends, there is good news. Another principle that you need to hold on to is the principle of the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Okay, so you got a, you got a principle that should shock us. You have here God's impartial judgment according to his own righteousness. But alongside of that is, boom, another track of the principle of the imputation of Christ's righteousness, which should, in fact, secure us. It should free us and should comfort us especially knowing God's righteous judgment. This principle of the imputation of Christ's righteousness, if you don't know what that means, you should take notice here. It means that those who believe on Christ by faith come to possess the very righteousness of Christ at judgment. 
We should all be thinking, well, whoa, wait a second here. How do I get that? Because Romans chapter 1 and, the beginning, and then here, even in the beginning of Romans chapter 2, we are under condemnation. How this works is that Christ becomes, for those who believe in faith, he becomes the righteousness we need for salvation and right standing before the holy God. In the imputation of Christ's righteousness, God takes the righteous robes of Christ, think about it this way, and he covers sinners in them. So that when God sees us right now, and especially at Judgment Day, he sees us through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so we, the unrighteous, are once and for all declared righteous, right? That's justification. We are declared righteous by grace through faith alone. But we even come to possess the righteousness of Christ, all by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So friends, if you're considering Christianity here, if you are sitting uncomfortably, even with the truths here that we're talking about, friends, don't let God's standard of righteous judgment cause you to run, right? You all know what it's like to be in trouble. You all know what it's like to be called out in sin. And what you either want to do in that one moment, in that one gap of sanity that you have, you can either choose to bolster your self-righteousness and deny the truth, suppress the truth, or you, can, you might know what it's like. You can actually embrace the conviction. You can embrace the truth and embrace the rebuke and say, yes. God, forgive me because I am a sinner. That's what he calls people to do here. Not to run away, but to run toward God. The righteous God who wants to give you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is because the righteousness of God that God needs to carry out judgment on sin, right? We get that. But friends, it is also because of his righteousness that he needs to uphold his justice that he provided his righteous son to bear that judgment for you. See, when you, when you were deserving of, of righteous judgment in eternal wrath, God sent his son to bear that for sinners who would ever, who, all and throughout every time, who would repent of their sins and believe upon him. And so salvation from start to finish is all by God's grace, all according to his mercy as he provides sinners a substitute. So friends, let the principle of the impartial righteous judgment of God make you run actually to the imputation of God's righteousness so that you, friend, your salvation will be secured before God, that you would be cared for, and that you would find comfort in the God who is kind and the God who is patient. Friends, do not presume upon his kindness one day further. Repent of your sins and believe on him for salvation. Now, Christians, you might be wondering here, this, this is a little funny here, some of these verses. Paul, is Paul arguing for some sort of works salvation as he states this principle of judgment according to works? That's what he's saying is a principle of judgment according to works. The answer is no, right? Keep in mind here, the logic here, he's setting up the good news by bringing the bad news. And part of that bad news is God's principle of impartiality at judgment day. Right. That's legit. Part of the bad news. Right. But he's setting something up. He's setting up the good news once again. And he's about to say that no one meets this righteous standard. He's already basically said it. He says there in, in Romans chapter one, the Gentiles are without excuse. He says there in chapter two, he's basically saying the moralists, including the Jew, even you guys who are the Old Testament people of God and have the law of God, you too are are without excuse. And then he's going to go there. In Romans chapter 3, verse 9, go ahead and look there. We turn to this verse every week, basically. What then, are Jews any, any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. 
you look down there at 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every, 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 every single, whether Jew or Gentile, every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You see, friends, he's laying down the principle that he is about to say there in chapter three that no one, absolutely no one can meet unless we are clothed in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. We are not only declared righteous before a holy judge, but we wear the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. And so God sees us like his holy child, Jesus. But not only that, though, even the works that come from faith that are never the ground of salvation. Right. We start producing those righteous works. And so when God comes to judge us in his standard of impartiality, he too judges us by works, but he judges us through the work of Jesus Christ. Which is why it says in Corinthians that Christ has become our righteousness and our sanctification. So he's not saying here, he's not arguing, he's not arguing against himself or contradicting salvation by grace alone through works alone and Christ alone. He's laying out the bad news that simply sets up the fact that all who repent of their sins and believe on Jesus Christ will be saved through the work of Christ alone. To conclude here, we saw the predicament. No one is good. We saw also the problem. We think that we can stand before God in our own unrighteousness. But then as we saw as well, we see the judgment even falls on the so-called do-gooder or the moralist. Thank God for the revelation of Jesus Christ and the revelation of his word. Because if we are too obtuse to even see the mess we make in the kitchen, we are going, friends, to be too obtuse to see the mess in our own hearts. But in God's kindness, he exposes the hearts, our hearts, and tells us how to be saved. It is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, these are hard words to hear. But they are, even though hard, they are good words to hear. Because they help us turn to salvation in Christ alone. Lord, we pray that you would help us never boast in our own righteousness as if we ever had any. Lord, we pray that we would boast in the righteousness of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that even though we are sinners, we thank you that those who repent and believe are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that just as you are holy and righteous, so, Lord, you are loving and merciful and gracious. And so there we see in the cross, Lord, we see your judgment, your righteous judgment, as you uphold the very things that are foundation of your throne, your justice, your righteousness. But, Lord, we thank you that we also see your love and mercy and your grace. Because through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, we see, Lord, that there is pardon for all who would ever cling to Christ alone for the salvation of our souls. Lord, with this wonderful news, Lord, we pray that we would bound out of these doors, proclaiming to others that indeed we can be saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.